As we move further into classrooms that are filled more with digital natives over digital immigrants, what kind of impact do you see that having on active learning and the variety of strategies that can be used? It's a great question, but first of all, I, I have to disclaim that I kind of reject the labels. I think that I was like, I have a problem with that. <laughs> but I think it's more socioeconomic than actual gen than generational. Mm -hmm. I think you could slice the pie so many different ways. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this episode, we will be discussing the practice of active learning in the various course modalities and how it encourages higher level thinking skills. Active learning is a student-centered approach at incorporating carefully planned instructional strategies to promote learning through manipulation of new content knowledge to complete activities that show understanding and accurate usage, rather than passive engagement like watching and listening. In simple terms, active learning is about moving from thinking and consuming to doing and applying. In 1956, educational psychologist Benjamin Bloom led the way to forming a hierarchy of terms that promote higher-level thinking skills by adding verbs to the learning process, avoiding verbs that encourage memorization or rote learning. It's most often used when describing how a learner will show mastery of a concept or process. It's also used when developing learning outcomes and objectives for any type of educational material. Because active learning is about doing rather than being passive like the traditional lecture offers, it easily lends itself to reaching higher levels on the Bloom's hierarchy, moving learning into the cognitive domains of analysis, evaluation, and creation. This is Celia Kutraitiwa, Jeanette Senecal, Stephen Crawford, from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovations Academic Innovation Instructional Design Team. All right, so today we're going to be talking about active learning. And Jeanette, I was wondering, what's your understanding of active learning? My understanding is that uh, in higher education, it's often a challenging endeavor, but a worthy endeavor. And when we're looking at how to get to those absolutely best student learning outcomes, active learning has quite a body of research behind it and has been validated as quite an effective means to get towards those uh, positive student learning outcomes. But, you know, the problem with that, if, with the research and active learning is there's not a consistent definition of what active learning is. I mean, you look at the last, what, 25 years worth of research where that term shows up and, and, and there's a disagreement on what active learning is. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with active learning is that we don't quite know what it is, but I know it when I see it. And I've even seen some faculty in, in, in some articles as well where some people go, well, if a student is actively thinking about what I said in my lecture, that counts. I don't agree with that personally. I mean, it just, for me, it, active learning is about doing. It's about doing something. And, and that's where I think you're absolutely right. And, and the research shows that when students are actively doing something, but that consistent definition of what is active learning, there, there's still some controversy on what that is exactly. So if there's no exact definition for it, how do you approach faculty when um, they come to you and say they would like to try implementing active learning? What kind of definition do you give them or how do you get them to have an, an understanding of it when there's no specific definition? You know, I, again, I think it comes down to, again, 
as you said, the Bloom's taxonomy verbs. I, I I often think about the doing part more than anything else, and it's like, how are stu- how will our students work with this? How how will they demonstrate this often? Which immediately pushes it to the higher level of Bloom's taxonomy. I mean, because you know, asking a student how do you identify something? Well, and even with a, even with the lower levels, now I think about it. You can still do some active things with that, and and we have seen some techniques where in uh, and I think it comes down to the strategies. We talk about the strategies thing more than definition of active learning. So, you know, we talk about problem based learning. We talk about reflections. We talk about think pair share. We talk about all these different things where we are encouraging students to think about and actively do something with that knowledge and. And I think that is creating those connection points in the mind that we hope will help keep that learning sticky. Those are great points. I try not to get too pedantic, but it happens. Um, Sometimes I like to anchor the conversation in talking about constructivism as a learning theory and really take a look at what it means for students to construct knowledge rather than consume information. And then from there, sometimes we can have a conversation about application. If they're a specialist in a particular content area or domain, what does it look like for somebody to actually apply the knowledge authentically in the real world? Yeah, I mean, and when so much of our learning is focused on reading the textbook or articles or whatnot, watching a lecture on on the internet or in person in a classroom, if so much of our learning is, and I'm going to call that passive, I don't care how much thinking a student does as you continue if you don't give them a break to think about it. And we have seen with one strategy where they recommend breaking up your lecture into five to 10 minute chunks and then taking a two minute break and having the student reflect and write their thoughts down on what they just heard. Um, That technique I think is a very interesting one because there isn't a very active component at the end. Do not take notes while I speak, but after I finished, start writing things down. So you're seeing, but Again, that doesn't feel like active learning to me. It just feels like note-taking in a different model. So Joel Michael um, wrote an article, Faculty Perceptions About Barriers to Active Learning for the um, college for college teaching. And he came up with a list um, from faculty with 22 items that were barriers to incorporating active learning in their classrooms. How do you approach faculty who are worried about integrating active learning? You know, I, I think let's talk about some of the barriers themselves and, and, and kind of knock through there. You know, I think about the classroom. I start with the physical room itself. If a faculty member wants to get students together to talk in groups and you're in a lecture hall with 300 seats bolted to the floor, you can still get in groups. You can have students move around and talk to each other, but there are, that room is designed for the students to be facing forward the entire time. So there's going to be a handful of students who may possibly be sitting awkward in their chair. And, you know, those are some physical barriers to some of the basic techniques. I think in a general sense, I also like to start by asking faculty or probing, what's their motivation? I mean, if they're coming to ask for insights and ideas and examples for active learning implementation, Where's that coming from? Is it something that they've heard about? Is it something that their their colleagues have spoken about? Is it something that they feel uh, an imperative from their administration to try? Because sometimes that sets the stage for providing more examples and helping them um, begin to flesh out a plan where um, small implementations are appropriate for their course rather than trying to redesign an entire curriculum around an intervention. 
And yeah, and I agree. I think we've heard, I think so many, so many of us over the years have heard active learning, active learning, active learning, do something in the room, flip the classroom, you know, get the lecture out of the room and have the students do something the entire time. And so a lot of times that motivation may be just trying to keep up with what needs to happen, tying it again to the learning objectives, you know, all because you get students talking in a group. What are they going to talk about? What are you going to have them do? There's there's some thinking that needs to go on behind the scenes. And so much of what you have said lends itself to the face to face classroom. It sounds like and talking about the um, the physical environment that they're in. Um, but what about those classes that are going from face to face to online? What do, what do you feel like that looks like within those classes with active learning? How do they show they're doing when everything they're doing is something doing? <laughs> so, so when I started doing this game of online learning in the late 90s, this model was very simple. You would read the, check, the textbook chapter. You would possibly read PowerPoint slides because we didn't have streaming video yet. YouTube was not invented yet. And then you would do a discussion board. The discussion board was the act of learning, and then you take an online quiz or test. And then next week, you do the exact same thing again. So I think for online learning, the lowest common denominator, low-hanging fruit for active learning was always the discussion board. And I think you still see that as a staple today, rightly or wrongly. Um, it is where most people go, go, that's active learning because the students are talking about the content. But we know there's better ways. Um, I think it also depends on the the knowledge of that the faculty may possess and the tolerance for students to handle um, different ways of accomplishing their learning activities. Especially in the online environment, students may already be somewhat overwhelmed by the technology, um, by the lack of being able to read social cues in a physical space. So figuring out the context for implementing active learning can be just as important as the actual activities. But I, too, I tend to think of active learning in the online environment as building, really students getting their fingers into things where they're not necessarily just completing assessments on material they're absorbing, but they're doing something, again, with that knowledge that's very active and constructive. Maybe that means they're working with student peers um, to develop some sort of you know, artifact that they can then share downstream with future classes. There are so many different models, but it's less about consuming information and regurgitating their mastery. So you're now touching on some of my favorite things, whether it's online or face-to-face, I, I really don't care which modality it is, problem-based learning, you know, solving problems with that knowledge you've gained and doing something with it. And, and that's easy, well, I shouldn't say easy, that's something you can do in both the online classroom as well as the face-to-face. And I think some of the, the most interesting online courses, and I think this is where it's really excelled in, in some areas, is problem-based learning in, on online courses. We like it because it's a little bit more um, resistant to academic uh, dishonesty problems because if you're using the same quizzes the entire time, those questions get out and the answers get out. But if it's a problem that you're trying to solve, everyone's going to solve it a little differently. So therefore, you start to see that originality of the student come through. So it's a little harder to, to do those um, dishonest acts in those scenarios. Jeanette, you also touched on um, the 
comfortability of working with the technology. As we move further into classrooms that are filled more with digital natives over digital immigrants, what kind of impact do you see that having on active learning and the variety of strategies that can be used? It's a great question, but first of all, I, I have to disclaim that I kind of reject the labels. I think that I was like, I have a problem with that because <laughs> I think it's more socioeconomic than actual gen than generational. Mm -hmm. I think you could slice the pie so many different ways, exactly, mm -hmm. and across disciplines and faculty, the perceptions can vary. But even students coming in and understanding their um, their learning skills, their metacognition, thinking about their own learning, it varies so widely that it sometimes is hard to make generalities and apply strategies based on that. Um, there is something to be said perhaps for technology exposure at a more consistent and younger age. I think we see that that some of the students, uh, as they graduate from high school and they're coming into their, their first few years in college, they may take it for granted that technology will be embedded, but they may still not have some of those even intermediate skills for what we might think of in the regular everyday professional world. Using word processing. There are so many things I see students have absolutely no my, idea how to do. My kids can make a PowerPoint deck on why they should have a new pet, but if they had to write a letter in Word or report in Word, beyond basic typing, they couldn't do much formatting. It's a great example. Yes, that is very true. And I see that in my own children, too, is uh, one can create musicallys over and over again and follow how to um, dub something or make something go speed up the um, the time in a video. She can't type a sentence. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I completely uh, I see that. But, you know, I think there's a good question that, uh, that needs to be addressed in there as well. And that's also about you're talking about the metacognition issue, the developmental of our, you know, how our students have developed and, and, and where they're at. It's, it's the psychological side. I mean, the problem with active learning and, and putting it and using those strategies in the classroom is that the student wants to know what is the correct answer. And when I think of the fields and the, and the programs that we serve here in the College of Nursing, it's there may not be a exact this is the answer to the problem it it could be this answer is slightly better than that answer except in this category where then this third answer is a little bit better there may be no right answer and i think a lot of our students struggle with that and that's probably one of the, the probably one of the biggest problems we have with active learning because i think the best active learning strategies where the students are doing something will not yield to the the best possible answer, the correct answer. It's going to yield to the student exploring and realizing, oh, there's multiple answers here. The world is not black and white. It is, and it's not even shades of gray. It's just all gray. Yes, there are some things that you just are not acceptable, but there's a lot more gray and it's hard to tell the difference between them because they're so close. So that may be one, another barrier to talk about there is thinking, you know, there may not be a right answer. So it's not going to be pick A, B, or C. It's going to be pick all three or not. I think that also opens the door to the possibility to maybe uh, ameliorate some of those barriers and some of those challenges and helping um, students to learn a little bit about learning. Sometimes that can be embedding some information in the syllabus about 
the pedagogy within the course in terms that they can wrap their mind around. And perhaps maybe that also begins the first class of the semester, explaining the value of active learning, engaging and applying the materials that they're going to be working with, because it helps to build up some of that metacognition. It helps to theoretically prevent some of the complaints that might arise that they have to teach themselves. And that's another area where I think instructional designers can be quite useful to faculty in preparing for this type of intervention. They can help them craft some of that language in some cases. And if you think about some of the classic problem-based learning models, you don't teach the student how to do what they're going to do at all. They, get, they, they go out and they, they do the problem and as they hit a, a, a barrier, they realize they don't have the knowledge to move forward and they're supposed to do exp exploration. And, and with some guidance, obviously, from the faculty who's, who's teaching them, identify what strategies, what strategies they should look at and then advance from that point on. So a lot of times you're getting the content, um, the content distribution embedded with the active doing and using of said content at the same time. And, and, and that's complicated to build, I mean, from, to wrap your head around sometimes and to just trust that this is going to work. And, and the thing is, it may work perfectly fine for several groups of students and then suddenly just have total meltdown and burn to the ground with another group because they just weren't mentally ready for it yet. It had nothing to do with you or the, or how the, or the structure of the active learning. I mean, when I think about how I would encourage faculty to start using these techniques, I think of case studies. Start thinking about how this looks in the real world. I mean, we've got to stop talking about the abstract stuff. We, I think, talking about branching case studies. I love the idea of, of a case study that goes across the entire semester and decisions that students make with the knowledge they have in week two of the semester close off possible choices down the road, maybe in week 10, as they're trying to resolve problems so they can understand the repercussions of their decisions. It's more than, you know, it really gets some really deep thinking going and teaches them some valuable lessons. And they want to hit the reset button because that's what you do in a game when you, when you have, when you hit that roadblock, you hit the reset, go back to that previous save. You can't do that in learning in the real world. So one of the barriers, and actually at the top of the list, was that active learning requires too much preparation time. How do you work with faculty who are coming in so close to the starting date of courses? Recommend an incremental approach. Pick one thing that's the best fit for your students, for your content, uh, for your tolerance for innovation, and work closely with an instructional designer to maximize the efficiency. I agree. Um, pick the you know, start with the low-hanging fruit, what strategies work best and, you know, for what you're trying to do and and be ready to be tolerant that the students may try to resist. Um, if, if you expect the students to walk into the classroom prepared and ready to do an activity and they're not, be ready to fail them for that activity, you know. They, they don't bail them out, you know. Stick to it and, and don't let the students dictate um, that's something to consider, you know, stick to it. It feels like over the years in education, active learning has become a bigger, um, concept, something that's getting pushed a little bit more, especially with, um, the, the easier implementation of using technology in the classroom. 
do you see or have you have you seen or heard of faculty using more and more active learning and do you feel like there's as much pushback um, with faculty who are using active learning than there used to be moving from traditional lecture to implementation? I, I think the pushback that we see today is from our students more than anything else. I think, you know, and faculty response to it, there seems to be this attitude where the students are going, just tell me what the right answer is. I, just tell me what I need to know. I don't want to do any work. Just tell me what I need to know so that I can just move on and go to the next thing. If the world was that simple, I, I would go like the matrix. I'd plug that jack into the back of your head and just download it right into your brain. And then boom, you know everything. But it's not. It's a messy world. It's a complicated world. And, and that's where we have to work with faculty to make them comfortable that, you know what, the students, yeah, they, especially if you're doing it for the first time, the students may push back through your course evals and our administrators must support the faculty for that and, and, and go forward. It's worth it. Do you feel like some of that comes from the perception that college is full of lecture, traditional lecture courses, or do you feel like that's coming from the, the idea that we're here to pass a test. I think popular culture has not done us any favors. And I think parents have not done us any favors. If I tell my kids about my undergraduate experience, it was a very passive environment. Um, and and I that was my lived experience. Well, I think too that um, we're seeing in some in some corners of the universe, Students in high school are also getting exposed to more group-based project, more problem-based learning, and that hopefully over time will help in increase the readiness of students for such interventions. But it seems to be a pretty slow process. And back to the point about risk for faculty, I think they have to have a supportive environment from their leadership, from their administrators, to understand that sometimes, you know, it's realistic to expect the first time an intervention is made, those course evaluations may show a negative impact. But it does not necessarily mean that the value was still not positive on the student's learning. Satisfaction can be quite separate from the actual outcome. We can see the grades go up in the class mm -hmm. and... Even if the next class doesn't do anything different, those grades could be higher because of the better foundation they had. But yet, you're absolutely right, a dip in the evaluation. So it's like, okay, so the grades went up, but the faculty evaluation went down. Yeah, so the environment has to be ready just as well as the students and the faculty. So what would you say is the greatest impact of um, implementing active learning on the faculty side and the student side? I think you named it with preparation on the faculty side. I mean, just the creativity, the thinking, the preparation. I think the biggest positive impact I see with students is they come in kind of having an idea of what they need to learn in a course, and active learning shows them that they really had no idea what they didn't know and what they needed to know, and it, in a way, really expands their universe in a positive way. It's challenging, but it's really positive. What would you say would be your favorite active learning strategies? 
In the classroom, I'm a huge fan of concept mapping with sticky notes. It's, it's a lot of fun. It can move very quickly. It's fairly low risk. It's, it's amenable to working students in smaller or larger groups. Concept maps are just so cool. Absolutely. And students seem to really uh, respond well to that because they can connect some of that theoretical knowledge and move towards solving problems and applying to their, their, their other scenarios they're and, working with. And if you do it digitally in the online environment and record that each week so they can so you can physically see how they see things connect you're going to actually watch a student's process and their thinking grow during the semester but in the classroom the sticky notes i mean yeah you can't go wrong with that yeah what's your favorite you know i i've gotten recently to be a big fan of think pair share um getting people to and i think that highly highlights the 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 not the there's not one right answer. Getting people together, thinking about things from different points of view, um, especially in a diverse classroom. Um, but just having people going, this is how I understand the problem. This is how I see it. And and then having them share that out as a group afterwards. It, it requires the student to come into the classroom prepared, uh, especially if you're going to do something of that level in the very beginning of the class. And it gets them interacting, it gets them socializing, it gets them really thinking and bouncing ideas off of people. And that's something you can still do online as well. But I've, I've gotten to be a real big fan of Think, Pair, Share. I think both of these that we've talked about have a low overhead. They're easy to implement. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we like these so much. It's when you get to the more complicated branching case studies and those, all those other wonderful things we love to talk about that gets hard. You know, and one thing that I'd like to add on to that think, pair, share, and something really cool that I just discovered with some faculty this last semester was the jigsaw approach. Um, within the classroom, that's taking groups and having them become a quote-unquote expert in a specific topic or reading of an article, and then sharing out to another group, another subgroup. I worked with a faculty member who took that in an online approach where they created the discussion board and the, the group became the expert, quote unquote expert, um, on the topic. And then they went into another group's discussion board and shared that knowledge with them. So I thought that was a really neat way to take something that's usually face to face and in class and actually make it work online. And that was a really neat thing to see because there's some strategies where I have to take some time and, and really think hard about how you can move that online. But to see that faculty figure that out, that was really neat. I love that example. I've used the jigsaw approach in a classroom and I never considered how to move it online. Great example. And I want to give one more bonus one. I, I love the idea of in-class polling. And I'm going to call it that on purpose um, because we like to use the word clickers and it's really becoming a misplaced term in our, in our time because we're getting to the point where you don't go and buy a clicker anymore to use in the classroom because the software now runs on your iPhones or your tablets or your laptops or whatever the case may be. And so you can now do online polling in the classroom you can get that instant temperature of what's going on in the room and know, okay, the students get this, give them the questions, put it online. What do y'all think? 30 seconds, snap decision, go. Oh, wait, you don't have the technology or your students may not have the technology. I've seen where people have used uh, four color note cards 
And so A, B, C, and D were different colors. And so you would just look at the room and, and literally take the temperature of the room by seeing what color dominates to know where the student misconceptions are. And so you, you can be lecturing on a topic and presenting on it and then get that feedback and instantly know they got it or, well, a lot of them did not get this. I need to talk about this a little bit more in depth, find out what those misconceptions are and talk about them. Good. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas on active learning. Thank you for joining us today in our active learning conversation with Jeanette Senecal, Stephen Crawford, myself, Celia Katretiwa, and a special thank you to our producer, Ricardo Lanz. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'd like to thank you for joining us today and listening to Instruction by Design, the art. What is it? <laughs> We're going to print it out really, really big. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, instruction, instruction by Design. By design. The podcast to the art of Your podcast. Okay. Okay. So note to self, script, closing. Okay. Yes. Got it. For number four. I'm on it. Yeah. Are you taking notes of all no, our totally clubs? Am. Totally am. <laughs>